0: Welcome to the Arts and Culture podcast from the Association for Cultural Enterprises. I'm Tom Dawson, Director of Digital, and today I wanted to talk about the current crisis in local government funding for the arts. Councils across the country are under enormous financial pressure, leading to several announcing huge cuts to arts funding. Birmingham has been in the news recently with a 21% council tax increase, while cutting many cultural organisations' funding in the city by 50% this year and 100% next year. They are by no means alone across the country. The Campaign for the Arts found English local authority spending on arts and culture has declined by 43% since 2009-10, 33% in Scotland, 36% in Wales in real terms. They found the Arts Council of Northern Ireland, for example, had suffered a 63% decline in government funding between 2010 and 2020 alone. With Lord Melvin Bragg making an impassioned speech in the House of Lords recently, stating the arts are not the cherry on the cake, they are the cake, while others question whether arts funding is appropriate at all when food banks and social care need cash. Where are we? How did we get here? And what can we do about it? My guests are three people in the thick of the action. Councillor Liz Green is the chair of the Local Government Association's Culture, Tourism and Sport Board, and has been a councillor in the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames since 2002 where she has held numerous positions, including leader of the Council for the Liberal Democrats. Zach Menzer is co-CEO of Birmingham Museums Trust and a trustee of Cultural Enterprises. We'll be hearing from Liz and Zach in a bit, but my first guest is Stephanie Sir, CEO of Nottingham Playhouse and co-president of UK Theatre. Thank you very much for speaking to me, Stephanie. As someone who was born and bred in Nottingham, Nottingham Playhouse has a certainly a special place in my heart. I think like a lot of British children, I think pantomime was probably our first introduction to theatre, and pantomimes at the playhouse were certainly mine and I know there were two in Nottingham, but dare I say it, the playhouses were, were always the best but tell us what's what's been happening with the playhouse and, and funding local authority funding in Nottingham City for the last few years I mean you know I've seen you talk about funding going from what over four hundred thousand pounds to Pretty much zero in the last few years. Is that right?
1: So, what's happened over the last thirteen years, in particular, is funding has gradually been eroded from both. We used to have funding from Nottingham City Council and Nottinghamshire County Council. If those two funds had kept faith and kept pace with inflation, we'd be getting well over a million pounds now from those two local authorities combined. What we're actually proposed to be getting from March the fourth is zero. So, uh, Nottingham City, particularly, it's gone down. It it should be about four hundred thousand at this point, but it's been gradually eroded over the years. It was 60 going into the financial year we're in and they're proposing zero for next.
0: I mean, that is a a huge amount of money, isn't it?
1: I mean, yes, it is. I think it's it's the money, but it's also the what does it mean? What does it mean about cultural strategy for the city of Nottingham? What does it mean for how the city sees the role of culture in placemaking, employment? all the things that culture does. So we contrast with Birmingham. Obviously, Birmingham's just been announced they're going to get a 50% cut, followed by 100%. They've had much higher levels of funding in Birmingham historically. So we're kind of, it's a bit of a glass half full thing. Because we have less to cut, we'll probably feel it less keenly because we've had years to adapt to being underfunded by a local authority. But it's a pretty pyrrhic victory. It's certainly £60,000 is something we can't afford to lose.
0: I see. So what's the impact been on the Playhouse and what you've been able to do?
1: Obviously, if you have less money, you can do fewer things that cost money to do. So we already earn about 80% of our income. That's only going to increase. The challenge is not so much around solvency or insolvency. It's not an existential sum of money, 60 grand. But culture delivers so much for the city of Nottingham that the city of Nottingham needs. And by city of Nottingham, I mean the people. I don't mean the local authority. And over the years, over pandemic in particular, but over the years, our role in providing those services to people of the city, particularly those in the most challenging circumstances, has only ever increased. And plus now we're more sort of mindful of how we drive footfall to the city. So over two million tickets a year are sold to the the top eight attractions and by that I mean cultural attractions I don't don't mean things like Woolison Hall or people coming shopping I mean (laughs) it's people buy tickets or participate in cultural activities that are ticketed there's about two million minimum of those about 75 to 80 percent are visitors so not only are we providing this really brilliant and much-needed service to the people of Nottingham I don't just mean the playhouse here I mean the whole cultural offer but also we're attracting multiple millions of day visitors who are then spending money on food, drink, other attractions, bit of shopping, as you do parking, transport. So it's increasingly obvious that culture is a key component of the success of Nottingham as a city, and I think you all know, agree this mean, you, you, you grew up here, you know, it's got an amazing offer. It's a brilliant place to live, work, grow up, whatever, because you've got so much to do. It's a tiny little city, really, but it massively punches above its weight. And it's, it's the cultural gem of the East Midlands easily in terms of things to do. So I think our view is you've got this amazing thing with galleries and fantastic music scene, fantastic theatre scene, loads of independent artists making things, filming things, recording things, writing things. Celebrate it. That's your USP. (laughs) So build on it, celebrate it, invest in it, work strategically in partnership with it. Don't kind of assume, I'm sure that'll be fine, it'll carry on regardless, because that seems like a very dangerous strategy. And also what that does is it means those really interesting hidden gems that do actually desperately need investment. To exist they kind of get lost you know they they don't form part of that ecology and then you're left with a much poorer scene really collectively
0: so that and that's a really eloquent and compelling argument for funding the arts at local and national level so what's gone wrong do you think is is it all about austerity why why is that case which is so strong and and as you say there are economic benefits to it as well as all the other arguments we, we can make Why do you think that's not cut through to some people?
1: I think it's probably timing. I think that timing plays a part in it. I mean, we're not unsympathetic to the position that the city council is in, because if you give a city council with significant demands on its core services, on its statutory services, less and less money, while the need for those statutory services goes up, it doesn't take a genius to work out how that doesn't work. Something's going to give. I think the argument and culture is a bit different. Actually, I think what we're saying is this doesn't really save you money if you cut culture and if you risk things, quite boring things like car parking, <laughs> those, a lot of those go straight into the City Council's coffers. So say we could do fewer performances at the Playhouse or say one of the other recipients of funding could, could do less work because you gave them less funding. Then you have fewer people coming to the city. Car parking is very expensive in Nottingham. We know that the car parking meters just around the Playhouse where you're, you're either going to the Playhouse or you're going to the Cathedral because you don't need to park there to go to places like Browns or whatever generate 200,000 a year to the City Council, say we did do fewer performances, You know, say we cut our performances by 20% because we just couldn't afford to do it. You know, we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got wages going up, we've got the price of plywood and all sorts of exciting things that impact what we do. If we did just 10% less, then that's £20,000 lost to the, to the local authority. So I just don't think it's being thought of as a whole offer, as a whole thing. The parking associated with something like the arena, I know the arena is not directly funded in this way, you know, it's running to millions, <laughs> millions of pounds a year. So I think you have to s- celebrate it as a whole thing and value it as a whole thing and understand that this is actually where a lot of the prosperity you do have is being generated from. And it's also, it's thousands of jobs, you know, there's thousands of jobs in, in Nottingham City are generated by the cultural offer. So get behind it, get with it, understand it as a whole thing. And then consider whether cutting it at the, at the grassroots level is actually going to really save you money that you can then spend on statutory services, because our argument is it probably doesn't.
0: So you talked about 80% self-generated income. Which areas have you looked at to respond to decreasing local authority funding?
1: We run a mixed economy model, I think most cultural organisations do, if they're of any scale. And so our money comes from primarily ticket sales. I mean, we have Arts Council funding and that's a significant element of what we do, but that's, that's in the other 20%, if you like. So of the 80% we earn, the majority is ticket sales by far. We also have something called, called theatre tax relief, which has been an absolute godsend to the theatre sector in particular. So if you're making work... Theatre tax relief has been really significant help to us and we really hope it continues at the higher level because it's a game changer. And they have an equivalent thing in film, they've had it for years and this is like the equivalent for theatre production and it's been transformative really fundraising and sponsorship do not raise as much as they used because the problem with the cost of living crisis is all the different pots of income that you had you know selling ice creams raising sponsorships, selling programs selling gin and tonics they're all affected but <laughs> it's not the opportunity it might appear to be certainly we make less money from those areas than we used and the other thing we do at the playhouse obviously we originate a lot of work it might go to the west end it might transfer to another theater at the moment we've got the kite runner on tour in america and that's generating a little bit of a royalty back to us we've got another production of the Kite Runner that's also ours going out on tour in the UK that generates some money we've got Christmas Carol transferring to Birmingham Rep at Christmas you sort of I mean so it's kind of we have our fingers in various different pies the aim has always been to spread the risk in terms of what's coming back to the playhouse so that that has helped over the years and we also have a very thriving presented work program that we present a lot of comedy you might have seen it at the playhouse it's a nice venue for comedy it's a nice venue for dance and for music and so those things all generate a return and a surplus But even with those, you know, you can't put up tickets by the cost of living crisis inflation rate because people haven't got that money. (laughs) So you're playing catch up in all those areas. You diversify your income streams and then you look at them all and you get "Mm, actually 90 percent of our diversified income streams are also dependent on people being able to afford to spend money.
0: Absolutely. As a producing theatre, interesting hearing you talk about that. And it kind of has that often talking culture of the halo effect of, you know, your success carries on to the success of other people in the sector not directly working for you and you know sometimes that isn't always appreciated i mean i mean as your role as co-president of uk theater have you found particular ways in which the sector has come together to kind of share solutions to this i'm just thinking what what are the ways we can do to support each other
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is an ecology and we are all dependent on each other to a greater or lesser extent, you know, whether that's, I mean, obviously the public doesn't view county or city boundaries at all. They just go and see and participate in the things that interest them. But collectively, I think it's really important to have a a shared voice. There are issues, particularly issues around Brexit, actually, which don't, Particularly affect Nottingham Playhouse so much because we don't. We've always tended to export our work to English-speaking nations for obvious reasons. So Brexit wasn't really a big thing for us, but it's certainly affected people, the number of people we could employ, and it's affected music and dance because they're, they're not dependent on language. So, you know, I know companies that can no longer tour in Europe because it's just too much hard work. You know, to make it all happen, it doesn't make it viable. So, yeah, we have to have a collective voice. Certainly, we've, uh, we lobby collectively on things like TTR to make sure that the government understands and and the new incoming government understand just how important that is to the theatre sector. And, you know, things around you know VAT exemptions and rates, business rates, that sort of thing, they're quite dull things, but you want them all collectively to join together to help make things happen. Because when you're a larger arts organisation, as we are... You want to be able to say yes to smaller organisations who come to you and say, can you help us with X, Y, Z, even if it's giving us space or access to your props team or whatever it is. You always want to be able to say yes, but you can only say yes if you can afford to. So I think the larger organisations being cut to the bone, it actually has a greater negative impact on smaller organisations than you might think.
0: Just thinking also as speaking from a cultural enterprises perspective in particular, I mean, Nottingham Playhouse has got iconic building you've got a a kind of a lovely square which I know enjoyed a drink outside in the past and it was interesting you said earlier that cost of living has certainly not meant maybe you've been able to generate as much income from commercial areas like that.
1: Well hospitality in general is really on its knees so obviously hospitality in theatres has a massive advantage because you've got 700 people a night maybe 800 people a night captive who are going to buy something but audience behavior has really changed. Whereas in the past, if you think about summer evening, sitting outside the playhouse, out know, looking at Anish Kapoor's Sky Mirror, enjoying a pint or whatever, people don't do that as much as they did. That's just not a kind of standard part of life. Partly people work from home a lot, so if they're going to come to the theatre, they'll come in just before they need to, if you like. Things like the cost of parking, you know, you're you're thinking, I don't really want to go to the playhouse early because I'll be paid paid to park for longer. People might get the bus in and they might arrive closer to curtain time. They have less money to spend, you know. And I think also people might have a drink before they come out and then they'll come to us. And then, you, you know... People value experiences more than stuff these days, don't they? Which I think is a really healthy way to go. And of course, I'm biased because we're selling experiences and we're not really selling stuff as much. But I think people are more conscious what they buy, what they spend. They don't necessarily buy a programme. They think, I'll get the information from the website. They don't want mementos in the way that they did. They don't buy merchandise in the ways that they did. They, they're being less wasteful. Actually, which is something we should be celebrating and applauding. But it doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't help with the bottom line, you know. And obviously, we've got our own environmental policy, which is to massively reduce waste. So we can't really argue when people say, "I'm not going to buy a bottle of water." Actually, I'm going to. I filled up my own bottle before I got here. But it does change the whole mixed economy. Changes and that thing of you know, even if you go back ten, fifteen years. Uh, when we used to run a restaurant and the the restaurant wasn't sustainable for this reason, but people used to come in and have Friday lunchtime. The restaurant was always full and they weren't with people coming to the playhouse. It was business people. That doesn't really happen in that way anymore. The business lunch is quite a rarity. And again, maybe that's a good thing, but when it's been part of your model, you have to find other ways to get the income in.
0: It's really interesting. I mean, one of the other ways I'm wondering, I was interested in your business club that you do with local businesses. I wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit about programs like that.
1: Yeah, well, what we do with business club is we're not like another business club. There's plenty of business clubs and they're really good and they're all about networking and it's very business oriented. And ours is a little bit more creative. So our business club, you will find out about creative solutions to business problems, business problems like uh, like sustainability and how to use data correctly in mosaic profiling and et cetera, et cetera. But you also probably end up making a bag or, you know, painting something or being together. Because I think one thing that we all really recognise is the pressure on the executives, the pressure on people who are senior managers is enormous, really, really high post-pandemic because they're expected to have the answers to everything. And so what we give people is a sort of, a, you know, a tangible, useful morning but also the chance to do something creative or learn about something creative to just sort of tap into that side of that brain, which we just think is really important. And people do appreciate it. They appreciate that it's justifiable business time spent because it's networking and it's learning, but it's also a little bit of a creative outlet for people, which we think is really healthy.
0: Okay. So what would you, as a chief exec and president of UK Theatre, what would you like to see happen next? In terms of local government funding. Is there any good news on the horizon, Stephanie? Is, is it all bleak?
1: <laughs> I hope so. I think the key thing is for the UK as a whole, which does not seem to wake up, recognise the enormous role of culture right the way across the country where it exists in this form, in driving everything from tackling mental health to supporting homeless people to increasing literacy to increasing direct revenue and indirect economic impact to local authorities. Oh, and by the way, also to being something that we're world class at doing in this country and really celebrate it, place it at the centre of growth, the centre of regeneration, the centre of health and participation and social cohesion, which is where it deserves to be. And in order to do that, I think three things need to happen. They need to continue to invest in TTR because that really helps the theatre sector. And the theatre sector I think is the thing that probably that we do the best in the world. I think our our ranking is probably the highest in theatre. They need to ensure that every single local authority has a proper joined up consultative cultural policy and strategy for their future and understands properly how it's impacting on what they already have. And I think we need to get the arts back into schools really, really strongly. Because we are creating a generation that are not having what earlier generations had. You know, we're going backwards. All the private schools and public schools invest massively in culture for their students because they understand how valuable it is in driving everything from literacy to confidence. But in the state sector, cultural subjects are taking a real backseat and it's such a backward step. So I think those are the three things I'd like to see happen from an incoming government and soon.
0: Well, let's hope so. That's a, a strong message for the future. Thank you very much for speaking to me, Stephanie.
1: You're welcome. Nice to speak.
0: After talking to Stephanie in Nottingham, I sat down with Councillor Liz Green, representing the Local Government Association, and Zach Menzer from Birmingham Museums Trust. Liz, Zach, thank you very much for joining me. We are in a very interesting week for local government arts funding. We've already heard from, from Stephanie at Nottingham Playhouse. I'm going to come straight to you, zach as a another venue hitting the headlines at the moment what's happening with local authority funding in in
2: birmingham over over recent years so for a bit of context birmingham museums trust is an organization charity that i lead with sarah wajid my co-chief executive and about 10 years ago birmingham city council spun it out into a trust for the reason that many people do for tax purposes so it was spun out and over the last 10 years the council has given pretty much a flat-line settlement as part of the agreement, which in effect is a cut. So as you can imagine, not receiving any inflationary increases over the last decade is a year-on-year cut, and I think it's only the pandemic that's really brought everyone's attention to what uh, how inflation actually impacts organisations. Coupled with that, uh, the, the funding from our other major public funder, which is Arts Council, has been great. It's about a million pounds a year for us. But again, similarly... That hasn't been increased so we're taking all the rising costs across the local you know the public sector without actually having to be able to build in the ways to buffer ourselves from that so it's been a very difficult time we're fortunate compared to many others that having a 25-year agreement with the council means that we've got like binding contracts so you 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 were hearing the press about the short-term challenges some of our colleagues in, in the sector but particularly in, in Birmingham we're facing right now and because of our, our rolling agreement with the council you won't see a public announcement about museums receiving a a cut but what I would say is that it has also hampered our ability to generate the money we need to on the capital side so the museum of art Gallery is currently shut and we're trying to work with the council to find ways of getting money to reopen one of our flagship museums but because of the council's predicament they don't have any money. So we're sort of stuck in this problem where, you know, the council sees the value of culture, but has to quite rightly balance its budgets. So we're sort of stuck in a rock and a hard place.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And we've heard news that, you know, council taxes have to go up by over 20% and, and cuts to, to various budgets. I mean, Liz, is that a picture that's being seen across local authorities over the, all over the UK?
3: Yeah, basically our funding has reduced. We raise most of our money from council tax as opposed to government grant, which is not how it used to be for many councils. Every council is different. But the LGA, the Local Government Association, is predicting a £4 billion shortfall in local government funding just to stand still between this year and next year. That's just to stay where we are without reinvesting in certain services. Obviously, we've had a spate of Section 114 notices issued, effective bankruptcy for a council, which sends them into a sort of special measures agreement with government. But even those councils that aren't in that position, their funding is reducing, their costs are increasing. So adult social care, children's social care, temporary homeless budgets, they are all going up astronomically, as well as having inflation and all of the other aspects, energy costs, supporting costs of living for people. All of those have just put massive pressure on our discretionary spend. And the arts and cultural services are a discretionary spend, not a statutory spend for councils.
0: And so what can we do as a sector to make the case for those discretionary spends, for for culture in particular, that, you know, it's vital to the lives of our local communities, but also the wider economy?
3: I mean, I think one of the things that the LGA is asking is, can the sectors that are struggling, because we are not able to offer that long-term investment and funding, help us in lobbying government? You know, because the more collectively we lobby government for a decent settlement and a long-term settlement. We've been living on one-year settlements. Our final budget came out in February. We have to set our budget legally by early March to get our council tax bills out by the 1st of April. So we're in a very short turnaround from the final settlement. Even the provisional settlement doesn't come out till December. It's usually in the week before Christmas, which is great for those in councils. But What we need is to lobby together and say, actually, what's suffering here, apart from people that need our services, is some of that discretionary spend. That is what we're not able to do. But we also need the sector. And this is where actually you're brilliant at it when you're at your best is to work with us creatively in our councils. What can we do to to keep the sector going, keep that well-being of our residents that we know the arts and cultural sector gives to our residents. What can we do to keep that going and do it differently? So we're spending less, but we're doing all of the good work. And as creative people within the sector, you're best placed to help us to do that in in your own area and in your local authority. There are a couple of other things that I think the sector needs to be able to do, which is to demonstrate very clearly the long term well-being and health benefits that come with cultural and arts activities. They need to demonstrate that it helps struggling families, that it provides the employment opportunities for many young people and those that are out of work. I know the sector does this really well, but it needs to demonstrate it more clearly, how inclusive it is. So services for those with disabilities, different types of people bringing together different cultures. And I know the sector does it, but I'm not sure it demonstrates it in a way that government-like to be able to prove these things. So I think those are just some of the things that the section do, which helps us, which helps you.
0: Zach, what do
2: you think about that in terms of communicating the benefits of what you do to government? I think as, as Liz says, it's really important that we work collectively, one. I think perhaps one of our challenges right now is you hear about various towns and councils independently talking about their pressures. But actually, it affects the whole country and the whole of the UK. So, you know, rather than us sometimes saying whatever millions of pounds of of value culture has, say, in Birmingham, it's actually across the UK, it's worth this amount of billions of pounds, for example, because the number is actually really, really high in terms of the benefits, both direct and indirect, that culture provides. But you very rarely hear us talking about those numbers. And so I imagine that government level, you know, talking about a billion pounds, for example, at Birmingham is a lot of money. But across the country, it's not a huge number. So I think there's a way that we have to not just think about government as one whole thing. It's about thinking about what, would it, what does Treasury want to hear? What does DLUQ want to hear? you know, What does DCMS want to hear? Because, again, I think we sometimes naively have a view that government's one big amorphous thing. And actually, it's made up of many, many bits of it. And I think if you talk to Treasury, for example, I'm sure they, they are really only interested in the direct economic benefit and so that's a completely separate conversation that you might have to talk about how museums can help change lives But I think there's a real urgent need for us to try and bring those figures together. And I do know that some of the partners such as Arts Council you know who are a major funder are doing some of that work but I feel that there's a whole load of stuff around how we can use data to tell stories that perhaps we're not doing right now.
3: Actually you're absolutely right Zach, the government departments are all individual And I think speaking to the Department for Health and the DfE, the Department for Education, become really key because what we're looking at is things like keeping people independent for longer because that keeps them out of social services costs. We know people living in their own homes for longer costs less to the system, but is actually much, much better for them. Older people don't want to go into care homes, understandably. And I think that the sector can really help with that, with tackling things like loneliness and in the social prescribing field. But it's the Department for Health that will be considering those elements, looking at public health and and those outcomes and the prevention outcomes, or helping families who are struggling to get their children involved in some of these activities, which then has a knock-on effect for a young person that's heading down a path that maybe we don't want – that then has an effect on the Department for Justice and the local police force. And actually, if we can incorporate them and give them something to do along the cultural and arts field, that keeps them out of those. So I think speaking to all of the different departments is really important. So I think that may come up with a really, really good point there.
0: So what I'm hearing is, and this sort of chimes with other, the conversations we have with Stephanie, is there's there's very much a holistic approach that needs to be taken to culture, that it has benefits much wider to maybe the the primary engagement with a museum or, or theatre. We also talked about the, the ecosystem that venues create. And I'm wondering, Zach, thinking about Birmingham Museums Trust, I mean, you've got a lot of venues, you're in a big city, the people you employ, the spend of the visitors that are drawn to Birmingham because of BMT. I mean, does that create an ecosystem in and of itself?
2: Absolutely, no. So we currently employ about 150 people, spend somewhere in a region of four and a half to five million pounds a year on salaries so if you imagine that directly is then being spent across in the local communities we also spend several million pounds a year on supplies and services many of which that supply chain is either directly or indirectly part of it as well so we looked at most recent figures 20 million pound plus just for our service alone in terms of economic value and then you think of all the other people who are coming to the cities like Birmingham for a day out and they'll use the public transport, they'll use car parking, and then perhaps they'll, you know, and, and, and. And I think there's a whole lot of to the value chain that people just don't necessarily see. Again, people tend to think, when I have conversations with people at Westminster, et cetera, they tend to think about museums purely as tourist attractions because, again, many of them, the London focus, is they tend to think of the things like the V&A, the Tate, Things are you know, massive tourist attractions, but outside, particularly in the regions, museums are often a lifeline for people in that community. And so, you know, whether it be for health reasons, whether it be for social prescribing, whether it's just you know, like for many of us, fifteen minutes out, you know, in public spaces is proven to be good for your health. So, you know, how can we make sure that our civic duty is seen that way rather than I think at the moment, unfortunately. Many councils are having to make difficult decisions and tend to look at things like museums as being a cost rather than a value. And so there's some urgent work for us to to work together for that. And I'd also want to defend people who work in culture within councils often do know that. They're really good advocates for us. But when it goes up the chain into a spreadsheet somewhere, it becomes, unfortunately, just a numbers game.
3: It does sometimes But I also think you need to get it out to the public. So Woking, that's issued a 114 notice, recently went to a public consultation. And things that the public said you need to keep are parks, play spaces, green spaces, making it a safe space, cleaning streets, things like that. And pools and leisure came up quite highly. But when they said we're considering closing these elements to save money, actually the most Ticked box of yes, you can close it if you've got to close something was actually arts and theatre, and I think that's a real shame. So that was twenty seven percent of people said that's what you should be considering closing. Only five percent said leisure or community halls, and I think that's the point that that you're making, Zach, that people don't recognise the benefit of those places, and I think the the sector needs to show people exactly what that benefit is what are the well-being benefits of attending the theater attending museums attending art galleries whatever it is so that people can recognize it isn't just about a nice to have it's actually essential to who we are as people to have an element of whatever your particular part of the culture is i mean it might be music or theater or art whatever it's actually benefiting you as a person. Um, and that means that you are less likely to suffer with mental health illnesses. It means that physically you're probably able to be more active and all of those things. And I'm not sure we do that collectively together between councils and the sector as
0: well as we can. OK, let's. I uh, just want to get a bit, bit more specific, if we can. So thinking about the impact that shrinking funding has had on USAC, what have you turned to? to fill some of those holes in income generation.
2: Birmingham is not too dissimilar to many of the organisations that occur across the UK. In the, in the last decade, we have managed to increase our earned income, which is the income you know, we generate that comes from things like cafes, events, filming rights, etc., and increased it by about 30%, which is pretty phenomenal. You know, When you think about a whole third of your business is now generated from the work that you do, That's the most recent thing that everyone's done. However, that hasn't been able to now keep up with the current rates of inflation, plus the double whammy of then the public sector cuts. So in effect, you know, like if you said oh, over two to five years we need to reduce your funding, people could respond to that. But what we're seeing is that most local authorities work on an annual budget cycle. They sort of technically say they work in you know, five-year medium-term plans, but many of them are certainly think about their budgets on an annual basis. And so what I'm trying to get people to understand is to try to think in two- to three-year cycles. So for example, if a council, this is a quite common number, if it's not you know exact figure, on average it seems to me that councils are cutting between 10 and 20 percent of the average museum budget this coming year but then expect them to generate the same or more money and i keep saying if you cut the budgets we have less budgets to then invest in things to generate that income you know no other business in the world would think about their operations over a one-year cycle and they certainly would think about over five ten years about how they can then depreciate those that investment So you have to spend money up front. And so, again, what I'm really worried about is how do we find that investment now that actually won't pay dividends for two to three, four or five years? Because that's ultimately going to save us. Otherwise, all we're doing is we're actually increasing the risk of insolvency or the equivalence of insolvency from the councils when they get over, which is a very difficult time right now. But I like to think eventually having optimism that councils in two to three years must have some kind of deal because if they don't, they're not going to be here. And so, when you have that information, you can start to say, well, actually, here are some th- things I can invest in. So, in my case right now, one of the biggest things I want to invest in is hardware for things like cafes. I need to find, you know, anywhere up to £100,000 now to refit a kitchen, to get it reopened, to generate me some money. But most people are saying, well, I haven't got £100,000 to give you, right? And so, how do you get people to understand that you need to invest now, even though it's a very difficult time? Because if you don't do that, you're gonna be in more of a pickle down that road. We're also looking at new income streams. So you know, like everyone, we're trying to find ways of making more money. But what I, again, what I would say is, like any other, other business, if you want to do that, you have to invest in R&D. You know, and then that takes time. Most people I know have been told you know, in the last two months they've got to make these savings in the next three to six months. So it's already too late for that. So what I, again, was encourage us to be, to be count on councils to be brave and actually try their best to keep the wall from the door as it were now in order for us all to accept the fact that we understand there'll be less public funding but we can be part of that solution and work with the public to try and do that whilst also where possible maintaining free the point of use services for many people who actually desperately need that at a time if we said earlier this conversation where the council tax is going up People are going to be looking for more free things to do at a time where we're all being asked, should you charge for your museums? Should you do this, should you do that? And it's great that some people can pay, but how do they make the people who don't mind paying or could afford to pay, pay to help fund the people who can't afford to do that? Because that's so critical because some people don't mind giving 10 pounds for an entrance to an exhibition, whereas for other people, that's absolutely not an option. So how can you make that work? Because we do know, and I promise I'll shut up, that just having donation boxes, for example, very rarely do people actually put into them. Because if everyone put a pound in, we wouldn't be in this position we're in now. But they don't. The, the reality is, for whatever reason, people don't give in the same way they do for other things. And so we can not also put our heads in the sand and hope that things that we know don't work will suddenly work.
0: So long-term thinking, Liz, I mean, it sounds key. I mean, would you agree?
3: Absolutely. And we've been asking the government to give us three-year settlements. So we used to get a three-year settlement deal. We've been on annual settlement deals for, I'm going to say at least a decade. I can't remember how long it's been now. We do have to produce what we call the medium term financial plan, but it's got great big holes in it. So, you know, we're going through budget setting at the moment. All councils are doing it now. And there will be a document in there that lists this year's budget and their future year's budget. But because we don't know what will come from government, it will just say, you know, five million savings or extra income. And we don't know where that's coming from. That's for a small council. For the bigger councils and the massive councils like Birmingham, it might say 50 million shortfall predicted next year. And I think this is one of the things that's most frustrating us. Because we're asked to apply for grants for things, which are short-term grants quite often from government, we have to turn them around really quickly, which means we can't come to you and say actually, how can we do this better? How can we work together on this? Because we've literally got to get the bid in. If we don't get the bid in, you won't get the money. And then it's a one-off funding. So we then can't pass on to you that solidity of three-year plus funding so that you know you're secure for that time period of time. So you can borrow the money to invest in refurbishing a cafe or whatever it is. And you can borrow that money secure in the knowledge that you will be able to repay it over the period of the agreement that you have from the council and this is where it all stems really from national government. If they can give us the settlement three year settlement, we can pass that on to the organizations that we work with. So you take this year between the draft settlement and the final settlement from government, it went up by six hundred million now bear in mind we 've got a four billion shortfall, but 600 million, very welcome, very pleased to get that extra money. But we didn't know that that was coming until mid-February, exactly what was coming. It was announced in January, but came in the amount per council in mid-February. Ours came in last week, I think it was, and we set our budget next week. You know, we can't work under those timescales. We can't prepare for them. And that means we we pass on that uncertainty to you But not because we want you to have uncertainty. We want you to know and we want to invest in the long term. And we want to be able to say we can help you with capital borrowing, maybe, because we know that we'll be able to help you or change your grant system, whatever it is that we're giving, so that it will be repaid over the period of time. And we we can borrow from the Public Works and Loans Board. So therefore, we've got that ability to borrow at, at good rates. But we just don't have that in hand. They just announce things year on year. I mean, Birmingham didn't know what percentage they could put their council tax up by until very recently. How can they budget? And then how can they pass that security on to you? The system is wrong, and that's what we need to try and change, starting with government, going through councils, into the sector, so that you have the security, and we know we're not, promising something we, we frankly can't deliver. Um, we don't want to make promises we can't deliver on.
0: And as Zach says, no no ordinary business would operate under those conditions. OK, let's look to the future if we can. Zach, what would you like to see happen next? Is there any cause for hope?
2: I mean, we have to all have hope, haven't we, right? Like, there's nothing in the future if we don't have hope, is the first thing that I would say about that. What I would say is that more than ever people are looking at collaboration, so we talked at the beginning again game this call cool, about the Department for Health, for example, education and things like that, as it's like actually understanding that museums and galleries, you know, and, and culture sector is part of the wider ecosystem. How do we champion that? You know, how do we support well-being? How do we help the public, not just through collections and stories, but for our physical spaces, to say, do you know what, this is what healthy food looks like. We're going to turn our part of our kitchen into a a food area that's going to teach people how to cook affordable meals, you know, in the local community, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So much more being of what the community wants, other than seen as just being a sort of you know a place to hang out for lots of great reasons. But actually saying, Do you know, what there's probably a thousand different reasons why people visit us. Let's try and double down on finding partners who want to support us because you know we've got those spaces. And we've got we've got a, a, a mass of people interested, and we just need to find a sustainable way, a long-term sustainable way, to get through this short-term problem. Because, you know, I'm a firm believer that culture is part of what makes society great, and uh, we want to protect that. But it's not a there's no right for it to exist unless we fight for it. So now we need to be in that mode of being hopeful, but also be really smart and fighting really really hard out of place for that but then most importantly not fighting with each other it's not one bit of the you know the public sector versus another but a part of the public sector it's like actually how can i help tomorrow with the fact that the you know, libraries community centers are all being closed down we're part of that community what we're we going to do about it and that's to say it's more of a rallying cry for us to help support that and doing it in a financially sustainable way
0: yeah that's a brilliant call to action zach liz what about you what would you like to see happen next
3: I think the public as a whole and certainly our partners in the public sector and in the volunteer sector and, you know, all of the different community groups we work with, however you run your cultural and arts events or space or whatever it is, are starting to understand more about local government funding and why councils are having to cut things. And it's a shame some have had to go under and issue section 114 notices to get us to that point. But I think there is a greater understanding. I also do think we are getting better at working together. And as Zach says, recognizing that because you're a museum, doesn't mean you're just displaying a lot of of wares and, and articles. Actually, you're running workshops for children. You're looking at creativity in what you provide for the people of that area or the wider tourism to attract them. And I think we're working together better than we ever have done before. And I think that will continue and get even better. So I'm actually quite hopeful because if we can get the funding issue sorted, we will work wonderfully together because I don't think we'll lose that connection we've made over the last 10, 15 years. And particularly, you know, in a post-COVID world, some of the connections during the pandemic were really strengthened between local government and all of our partners. I don't think we'll lose those and we can build on those and we'll have a a more thriving space for arts and culture than we currently do. I think previously we never looked, you know, we run thousands of libraries. I think it's 3000 libraries across the country that councils run and they were seen as borrowing a book well, actually, they're way more than borrowing a book. They, they were already on that changed journey, but they are way, way more than that. And that's a really positive thing because having a building there just to borrow a book is a waste of that space. We need to be doing all of the other aspects, same with all the museums that we support. And I think we're moving towards that. So I, I do think, as I said, we will come back closer more able to support the communities and what the communities need and Birmingham will be different to Kingston where I'm a councillor support those communities support the wider tourism and actually work together to provide the best
0: services amen to that councillor Liz Green Zach Mensah, thank you very much for talking to me welcome
2: my pleasure
0: So there you have it. We've heard from three voices affected by the current funding cuts. But what do you think? We'll be keeping a close eye on developments. Before we end, let's send a shout out to everyone working hard in local government and arts organisations, especially those with an uncertain future. Keep going. What you do is important and it is valued. You've been listening to the Arts and Culture podcast from the Association for Cultural Enterprises. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Simplecast. Until next time, thanks for listening.